0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Genocide Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my honor to be in dialogue with Dr. Dirk Venema of the Open University of the Netherlands. We will be discussing his newly edited book, supreme courts under nazi occupation published in amsterdam by amsterdam university press 2022 dirk it is an honor to be in dialogue with you today
1: thank you very much uh, Ari. i'm honored with the invitation thank Thank you.
0: you to begin please tell us about yourself where did you grow up What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you would become as an adult?
1: Well, I grew up in uh, in Leiden in the Netherlands, where I also studied uh, at Leiden University. I obtained two master's degrees there, one in philosophy, uh, which was my first um, study. And then I took on law as well, because um, uh, I thought, well, maybe sometime I have to get a a job, and then uh, a law degree is uh, always very handy, uh, and much more handy than just a philosophy degree. So, and I got interested in law as well because um, in the Netherlands, law is not the subject that is uh, considered uh, very very difficult, but it is considered very useful. So that, um, and that is also actually the case. Uh, and this combination of subjects um, enabled me to. Uh well it eventually got me a PhD position uh, at another university in the Netherlands at Nijmegen Radboud University uh where I got the chance to write a dissertation on uh the Dutch judiciary during the Second World War, um and um also teaching philosophy of law, um and so the the that was a research proposal that was already uh there and so I. Uh, applied for that and I got the position Uh, I was not really interested in the second world war at all actually at that time Uh, so my interest developed uh, um, during my PhD research and then uh, later I um, got the idea to expand this this research uh, to um, all the judiciaries um, in Europe under Nazi occupation Um, and first uh, before that I I cooperated on a book on just the Dutch um, Supreme Court under Nazi occupation which was like the first step uh to this um bigger project and um as formative events are are concerned um i don't really see a really decisive uh, events that that for me as a as a scholar uh, except maybe um the the one who influenced my choice for studying philosophy uh not law was my um, uh, high school German literature teacher uh, which is uh, which is often uh, often the case um uh, at least in my um uh, in my school it was a very inspiring teacher who uh, inspired you to to think more about the books you read in all kinds of ways so this um, sparked my my philosophical uh interest and then uh, i uh, and i'm glad that my my parents let me study philosophy although uh, job perspectives were not very great uh, for this uh, particular uh, subject
0: what inspired you to prepare this book what message do you hope to convey to your readers
1: ah that so i wanted to extend uh, the research i had already done for my dissertation and uh, and the book on the uh, the dutch supreme court that i uh, collaborated on afterwards um so and i decided to um to limit it to the the democratic countries that were uh, were occupied because their situations uh i expected to be more similar um so that more meaningful conclusions might be drawn from uh, such a comparative uh, uh, study um and at first i had the hope that it might yield um relatively detailed Uh, conclusions uh, on uh, very comparable data on detailed subjects, Um, but soon I um, alert that that was not really feasible because all the different um, cases are so, um, well, there are not enough similarities to really um, yield any Statistical truths, uh I- I- if you like. Um there are a couple of countries where, for example, the problem of judicial review uh played an important role. Um, in some countries, uh personnel policy was more or less comparable. In some countries, the uh the, the legislation um had some uh some overlap uh legislation that the occupier. Uh, introduced, but uh, there are hardly any real uh, clear uh, data that you can put into a, a nice um, uh, Excel sheet and draw conclusions uh, from that. So, so I, I quickly uh, put that ambition aside um and uh, well I went on with the project anyway because I uh, had already started it and I had already read some of the um some of the chapters some of the manuscripts that they, my colleagues uh, in all those countries had uh had written um so um I I quickly um um learned that I couldn't draw conclusions like if your supreme court resigns at the start of the occupation then the consequences for the citizens will be uh, will be such and such or will be better than if the uh, the judges all remain in their offices um or if you want to block certain legislative measures by the occupier this will be the best strategy to do so so these kinds of conclusions um could not be reached um which is uh, no, no problem. I think because that uh, that was probably a far too ambitious uh, expectation uh, uh, of mine. And uh, and besides, um, what is also a limiting factor are the um, uh, available sources. In some countries, uh, like like Luxembourg, um, not even all the uh, archives are accessible for uh, for researchers. So and. The different researchers in the different countries also, of course, have different uh, approaches, different uh, things that they find important themselves, and it's not always easy to 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 um, uh, have everyone um, uh, research exactly those aspects that you uh, find interesting yourself. So I, I let that um, initial ambition go, and uh, still it turned out to be really uh interesting uh really interesting uh results um that that i got from all the uh from all my colleagues who uh um who participated in this project w- ha- without any promise of uh uh of, of a result because um uh, at some point i i took a break from academia for a couple of years and i didn't have much time to to uh to lead this project uh uh for a bit so um so i'm glad they all stuck with me and uh bared with me until the the end um and what is also so um what so the situations in the different countries are very different the the sources are different the the approaches by the different uh researchers uh are different so um but what is um possible to to distill as a sort of a uh common message is uh besides the the message of the the, the difficulty of um drawing general conclusions uh, is that you can say something about um the the nature of the position of judges in wartime and occupation especially the second world war so uh because their position is um like that of all civil servants and and government uh, officials is it's a very precarious position and it's an ambiguous position um in all these situations and it, it's inevitably vulnerable to criticism uh no matter how they um approached their 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 jobs and how they uh what their attitude um was uh, towards, well the best strategy to uphold the the law and uh, defend the legal system and uh, and the democracy under this uh, this enemy uh, uh, occupier and so that that's a, a theme i think is um, is very important um uh, to consider in um uh, in in this uh, this research
0: what are the primary themes in your book what story or stories does your book tell
1: yeah so um um from the 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 last uh, my last answer i think um uh you can see that the the the, so the primary theme is i think um um what besides what the uh, supreme courts can do to defend democracy which is a very um uh pluralistic uh, picture because of all the differences in the situations. There are some um, elements that return uh, in in every chapter um, uh, concerning the way that the supreme courts can defend democracy, the rule of law, the population um, uh, against the anti-democratic occupier. So, so these are more like systemic or 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 macro perspective uh, conclusions that you can uh, reach. Um, uh, but in answering the, this question, the, the personal level becomes very interesting as well, because um, um, you have to, uh, um, because what, what comes into view is, is how the judges themselves as, as uh, people working uh, uh, for the government under an enemy occupation, how they deal with the situation, what was there and how was it evaluated during and after uh, the occupation? so so although it's it's really difficult to tell a unified story about seven different uh different countries um uh you should also not forget that at the time due to all kinds of restrictions of, in communication press radio and correspondence especially across borders uh uh not even judges in the same country knew what their uh, their colleagues in, in other cities or uh, or in their Supreme Court uh, were up to. Um, and they knew really very, very little of what was happening uh, across the border. So in, in every country, the courts had to find out for themselves what they should do, what strategy might be successful, uh, what, what they could try out to um, make the best of it, um, regarding adjudication um and uh, the defense of the uh, their own legal system during uh, during the war. So there's a there's a story to tell. It would be um, a, a, a story of all kinds of different uh, ways and um, um, approaches trying to save as much of the 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 democratic status quo, what was left of the the their democracy under uh, Nazi occupation um, and that there are similarities and maybe maybe so sort of the most striking common theme would be that most judges just tried to make the best of it and uphold the national legal system provide as much continuity uh, and stability as they could uh, for the for the people. Um, uh, in, in the face, of course, of, of total. Um, unpredictability and sometimes harsh criticism from their own um uh, citizens and uh, and of course of course some some judges were nazi sympathizers um uh, uh, either um already in function before the war or appointed by uh, the occupier and and sometimes even try, they try to uh, to further uh, nazi policies but this was a um fortunately a small minority
0: what does your book teach us about the history of international law
1: that's a, that's a good question because um international law um regarding um war and and conflict and occupation uh has always had a very um difficult status because there 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 was not and there well now we have the united nations but uh they didn't exist yet uh, and the um um The the League of Nations was not very uh, powerful. So there was international law actually concerning um, uh, military occupation. It was the the Hague Regulations of Land Warfare uh, that was part of the uh, Hague uh, Convention uh, of Land Warfare. And in these Hague Regulations, there was a a formal limit on um, uh, the legislative competence of occupiers. So an occupier was not allowed to legislate for the occupied territories unless it was absolutely necessary um, for for keeping public order and and protecting civil life. Um, but as as there was no organ uh, international or, or otherwise with the competence or the or, or the power to to monitor or review any legislation by any occupier. Um, it, it didn't have have real power uh, in in practice. nevertheless, um, it it was an an argue, an argument. so so in discussions with the occupier, the Germans did um, well, let me put it this way, the Germans saw compliance with these Hague regulations or or uh, they pretended uh, to comply with it as part of their Quest for legitimacy. So this was very important for the for the Germans to um, uh, to have some kind of legitimacy as rulers of uh, those occupied countries, um, and one of the instruments for that was to uh, show themselves as um, um, honoring international law of occupation uh, and. In the first phase of the occupations, they they actually did um, th- comply with um, with the Hague rules of land warfare um, partially. But later, when it was not in their interest anymore uh, to uphold this this uh, semblance of legitimacy in the occupied uh, countries, they 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 totally let it go and uh just openly dismissed and ridiculed arguments based on international law uh and and then it stopped being a useful argument uh for uh judges or other officials from from the occupied uh, uh countries um uh, and there was in in the netherlands and and norway there was uh uh a very an interesting controversy over uh judicial review so there it played an important role um, where judges uh, of the Supreme Court um, uh, wanted to review or, or refused to review uh, German ordinances against these um, uh, Hague regulations. So it did play a role, uh, but it also shows that um, uh, international law, at, at least at that time, had a very limited um, power uh, vis-a-vis actual wars.
0: How can the study of national supreme courts under Nazi occupation advance our knowledge of the Holocaust?
1: This is an interesting question as well, and 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 you might expect that um, uh, the the persecution of of Jews would would have um, appeared in court cases, but actually it didn't, uh, it or very very very, um, very in a very limited uh, way. Um, because in, in their quest for legitimacy, uh, the, the Germans really meticulously tried to, to keep anything related to the persecution of the Jews out of the domestic courts. Um, because if, if, it, if it played a role, for example, uh, when there was um, uh, a conflict over um, property that had been robbed uh, from, from Jews, um, such as businesses, um then the at least in, in the Netherlands the german reichskommissar the leader of the german occupation regime could remove that case from the dutch court and assign it to his own uh functionaries or decide it himself even um so that um there would be no public ruling by a dutch court on something related to the uh, to any uh, decrees um to anti, any any anti-jewish decrees um related to to the holocaust so so that was part of their um uh, strategy to to seem as legitimate as as possible uh so so not not to have any public statements uh by dutch government or court officials on uh Things related to the to the Holocaust, so so they kept it from the courts.
0: Can you tell us about the fates of Jewish Supreme Court justices?
1: Uh yes, very very little actually, because uh, from this uh, um, research, there are only in in these countries there are only three countries that had Jewish um, members of the Supreme Courts: so the Netherlands the protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia, which is uh, more or less uh, modern day Czech Republic and, uh, and France. Um, the Jewish uh, president of the Dutch Supreme Court was, um, well, of course, he was dismissed from the court, and uh, but he was not deported and died of a heart failure in 1942. Um, and and uh, um, sadly, hardly any of his former colleagues attended uh, the funeral. Um, In in France, 17 uh, judges uh, of the uh, the Cour de Cassation, the Supreme Court, and the Conseil d'État, the the Council of State, that decided administrative law um, uh, questions, uh, they had 17 uh, uh, Jewish members in total, uh, which were all uh, um, uh, ousted, of course. And in the the Protectorate, there was one judge uh, who was dismissed because it was Jewish uh, ancestry, and um, a, a couple of other um, judges uh, had their salaries um, cut because they had uh, they were married to to Jewish uh, wives, um, but there's uh, no detailed information of their their fates. Uh, so, some some returned and were reappointed, uh, and some didn't.
0: Who was Raoul? Heuwa de Termicour. can you tell us about him
1: ah yeah so in in Germ- in in, uh, in belgium they had the uh, um they had an experience with uh, german occupation in the in the first world war uh, uh which which they used uh, in their strategy towards the the german uh, occupier in the second german occupation um and this um Caused a a more um, a more active uh, attitude uh, of the Belgian uh, the Belgian judges, but also the Belgian um, government officials. Um, in in their negotiations and discussions with the with the German uh, occupier, because they had dealt with them before, some some civil servants and some judges uh, had experienced this in their office already uh, in the First World War. So so they they knew more or less what they were dealing with, and this uh, Raoul de Termicourt uh, was um, um, an attorney general at the B- Belgian Court of Cassation, and he was. Like the, the the exponent of the the um, the negotiations, uh, the energetic, uh, active negotiations with uh, with the Germans, he was a prominent and a tireless a mediator, uh, which really made a difference um, uh, in um, furthering Belgian interests with the Germans. Um, and it, for example, the Netherlands did not have such a, a, a prominent mediator. Uh, and negotiations were much more um well they, they were as active and not as they, they, they were much more um um how should I say this um they 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 were they were afraid to antagonize the the Germans much more in the Netherlands um and in the in Belgium they did not have that such a such a fear they just, uh, went into the negotiations much more actively uh, and much uh, different, different from many other countries. Also, um, uh, De Terniqueur introduced the term "the lesser evil" in the negotiations in in the um, in the strategy of the Belgian negotiations with the with the Germans. Um, the, so, the lesser evil it doesn't sound very uh, very heroic, it, and it was indeed meant to be um, to inspire um the belgian negotiators uh to be pragmatic uh to to uh use pragmatism uh over principle to put pragmatism above principle um to uh, acquire better results that was their uh, their idea uh, the lesser evil was all, also the uh, the strategy in the first world war um and they thought that this would be better than to uh to hammer on principles uh for too long because that would uh antagonize the Germans too much at the same time they they really went into the negotiations with uh with more activism than, uh, than in, in the Netherlands
0: who was Paul Berg can you tell us about him
1: yeah, Paul Berg was um, uh, the president of the Norwegian um, Supreme Court, and a very interesting uh, figure. He um, uh, he led the Supreme Court uh, in the discussions with the Germans over um, the right of judicial review. Um, the Norwegian Supreme Court had the uh, position that judicial review of uh, the decrees of the occupier uh, against the Hague regulations should be possible. Uh, they sh- they should be, the Norwegian judges should be allowed to review all the German ordinances against these um, criterion of absolute necessity for um, uh, public order. And the Germans did not want the court to do that because this would uh, impair their legitimacy uh, because um, then the court would openly... Um, uh, judge the uh, the legality of the German decrees um, but the court said well if we cannot judge the legality of uh, the rules that we have to apply we are no longer judges so we cannot uh, comply with this uh, with this wish um, and so we will we will step down and they did so already before Christmas 1940 and um, so this, this turned the the Norwegian Supreme Court, who had been uh well uh not a very popular institution in Norwegian society before the war, uh th- this turned them into war heroes overnight. Uh and, and after the war the, the, they kept this this image and and it, it never um it was never endangered, although uh Paul Berg, he um in the in the first Months of the occupation, when the Supreme Court was still active, he had uh, negotiated with the Germans sometimes uh, on his own without consulting his colleagues, which 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 led to um, severe criticism uh, from his colleagues. Also after the war, but because um, this whole court had become such a uh, such a heroic institution, uh, it, it it never um, caused any problems for him uh, anymore.
0: Can you tell us about René Cassin?
1: René Cassin is um is also a very interesting figure, and, uh, a Jewish uh, lawyer in in France um who had joined the the Free French of uh, General de Gaulle in in uh, in London and um he was appointed after the war um as a vice president of the uh, um uh of the Conseil d'État, the uh, council of state uh, which is the highest administrative lawyer uh court in in france um and this is an example of um restoring legitimacy by uh personnel policy uh so the the dig- legitimacy of both the uh, supreme court the Cour de cassation uh in france um and the um the council of state had had been yes somewhat impaired by their not very heroic role uh, during during the war and so after the war uh De Gaulle decided to uh, to appoint uh this this famous um uh, jurist rene Cassin, uh, who was also jewish uh, as a vice president so uh, um to silence any possible critique um uh on this institution um Uh, Later, Cassin also participated in the drafting of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and receiving also the Nobel Prize uh, for this. So he he was a real um, uh, legal hero, you could say, Um, and this contributed to... to the to, to a, a more positive picture of the Conseil d'État than maybe would have been justified uh, uh, concerning their their war history.
0: What does your book teach us about the relationship between law and power?
1: Well, um, it I think it teaches um, us that um, although so. so you might be inclined to think that in a in an occupation situation there's a, there's a military occupier who has has uh, won uh won the war or at least um the, the 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 first part of it uh and then has all the power to do what he wants so he uh, needn't be concerned with law uh well that is not uh, the case um uh, for example, um although Hitler himself was, was is, is well known that he always mocked lawyers, he was always against lawyers because he uh, he because he found that lawyers were always uh, making trouble, uh, make were always in the way with regulations that um, um, stopped him from executing his policies um, um swiftly. Um, but but still, you need law to um organize society uh and th- this is apparent from most of the the cases studied in this uh, book that although uh, the, the Germans maybe wished to uh, implement uh, policies quickly um uh they they were they quickly realized that they they needed um the the whole organizational structure, um, the whole administrative structure uh, in, in the countries, because they needed that to organize the country. And it was in the interest of uh, both the occupier and the, uh, uh, the society uh, of the occupied country that, the, um, that there is continuity in law, that there is continuity and stability in the organization of society. Uh, and for that, they also needed the courts um, uh and so i think to to sum it up um the answer to this question is that the relationship uh between law and power is such that 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 law is is more necessary uh to for the exertion of power uh and uh for the implementation of, of policies than um than maybe uh the, the occupiers had had uh, expected uh, before because often they were frustrated with all the um the time consuming formalities uh, of the law um which which turned out to be necessary uh, after all
0: who was joseph jamar can you tell us about him
1: yeah uh, joseph jamar was the Just... president of the belgian uh, court of cassation or cour de cassation um he um, well, the, the interesting thing about him is um, maybe not so much um, the, the the wartime history, but um, uh, what happened after the war. Because after the war, he was uh, decorated for his role uh, as Supreme Court president under uh, enemy uh, occupation. Um, but later, um, uh, historians in in the in the uh, in the decades after the the the, the war. Historians were less, enthousi- less enthusiastic. Sorry about the the this ambiguous pragmatic lesser evil approach that we talked about um, of the court um, and uh, of the rest of the government uh, administration. And in that respect, um, uh, Jamar is uh, uh, an example of how um, initially um, reputations can be very very positive uh, of, of judges uh, who um uh, led the court during an enemy occupation that later um sort of deteriorate deteriorated uh, by um more research being done and and more um well I, 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 I'll, I'll stop there it's um <laughs> I'll, I'll start this uh, this sentence again um so what what it shows is that um this decoration was part of um a, an approach of the belgian um uh, government to to um convey a picture of of heroics of, of their own institutions during uh, the german occupation but later um historians um were um progressively less uh, enthusiastic about this, their actual pragmatic uh, approach during uh, during the negotiations with the Germans, which, which didn't really um, uh, make such a difference as they uh, had hoped.
0: To what degree were the courts of occupied countries nazified?
1: Yeah, so that's an interesting point, because um, you might expect that uh, uh, an, an enemy occupier especially uh, the nazis would um immediately try to to, to nazify the administration uh, of any country that they uh, that they invaded uh, especially the countries that they thought were um possibly sympathetic to nazism because they were viewed as um germanic uh, brother peoples like um the dutch and the norwegians and uh, the half of the Belgians, the the northern half, the Flemish. Um, So um, they did have a Nazification policy of of the courts, uh, but it didn't go very, very far because, um, so the most, obvious form would be for the occupier to to appoint sympathizers uh who they can count on to to loyally comply with their policies to apply their laws and uh, not to participate in any protests um and but the differences in this re- respect were huge uh for example in denmark um the germans didn't exert any influence at all on personnel policy uh, they had a very small occupation regime uh and not a shot had been fired Um, uh, while in Norway for example after the entire court had stepped down um, they had to appoint a whole new court um, which which was of course uh, forced uh, upon them Um, and so this was a huge difference um, and more politically reliable judges were also appointed in the Netherlands, in France in the protectorate um also in italy um and of course uh, this strategy had also been applied in germany itself since hitler had seized uh power in in belgium they they had successfully prevented um any new appointments by uh for example extending um uh retirement uh, uh age of uh, of judges or or, or uh, especially appointing them uh, after their uh, after their retirement. Um, th- this this was one of the things they had learned from the first um, German occupation and in Luxembourg that was a different case altogether because their Supreme Court was totally transformed into separate appeal courts integrated into the German court system, uh, making German judges competent in Luxembourg as well and um, indeed a number of them, also came to Luxembourg to sit on Luxembourg uh, courts, um, which is a bit like like Russia is proceeding now with the justice system in in the illegally annexed parts of of Ukraine. So um, of course, appointments are only possible when there are vacancies. And the Germans created these vacancies in several ways. Uh, In the Netherlands and Norway, they lowered the retirement age from 70 to 65. um, which also happened, by the way, in, uh, in Hungary in, uh, in 2011, uh, by Prime Minister uh, Orban in Poland. Also similar measures uh, were taken in 2017. Uh, so this is an instrument that is um, used more often than just under uh, uh, in occupation situations. Um, also, the Germans dismissed judges who were deemed politically unreliable, in uh, some of the countries they, they occupied. and of course Jewish judges were uh, were removed from office um, in, uh, in the countries uh, we just uh, talked about. You, you could you could call this the strategy of of purging and packing um, the courts. Now um, uh, this this notification policy uh, um, is very is much more difficult than the notification of, for example, mayors. Um, In in the Netherlands, uh, many mayors were uh, dismissed and replaced by uh, Dutch Nazi party members. Um, They could follow a a two-weeks mayor's course (laughs) in order to become eligible for an appointment as as mayor. No such thing was possible for judges because um, judging is, is such a highly professional and specialized skill that very few lawyers or jurists that are not, Judges uh, yet um, are immediately capable of of uh, of being a judge without uh, any any specific training. So so in Norway, for example, the regime had a lot of difficulty in filling all those vacancies uh, for for the whole uh, Supreme Court, um, and initially only half of the vacancies could be filled, uh, and vacancies remained. Uh, through the entire period of the the occupation so so there, they were ne- never able to f- fill the court um, of course also many uh lawyers or jurists who would be eligible um to to sit on a supreme court did not want to be ocup- uh did not want to be appointed by the occupier because it would leave them tainted and and as they had uh because they would have recognized the occupier's authority uh to appoint them on the other hand there were all, also those who were strongly in favor of accepting uh, appointments to prevent any nazi sympathizers to infiltrate the, the judiciary so um um the, this this was a, 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 a fundamental discussion uh in in several countries um uh, to, whether to accept or not to accept appointments by the occupier but even uh when sympathizers Nazi sympathizers or uh loyal cooperators would be appointed in the in the courts um that still didn't automatically mean that there, that they would contribute to a real nazification of of those courts because um well for example in the Netherlands uh the the secretary of uh, the Secretary General of Justice who appointed many of the lower judges he, he was a Nazi party member, but he made sure not to appoint rabid fascists uh, to the courts, uh, because he knew that that w- w- wouldn't work. Um, and the Nazi sympathizers he that were appointed mostly made sure that they did not antagonize their colleagues uh, in the courts, because that would obviously frustrate the functioning of the courts. And, and that, that is in, in nobody's uh, interest. So what is uh, striking in the Norwegian case where the where the new Supreme Court consisted of of entirely of Nazi uh, uh, sympathizers or at least loyal cooperators. um, What turned out, um, as the research in this book uh, shows, that they adjudicated in much the same way as the legitimate court who had resigned would have done. Uh, This is this might be very surprising. and even Jewish litigants uh, were not treated differently from uh, from non-Jewish uh, parties by this uh, this court. Um, so this the their, the attempts at Nazification um, were relatively modest, you could say, um, because it was a very very tricky uh, thing. And um, it also shows, I think, how how deeply ingrained legal and, and judicial values um uh, are in lawyers and and jurists because apparently it um well it, it causes them to to keep applying rules in an impartial way uh whatever the political circumstance. of course this doesn't doesn't um apply to all um uh, nazi sympathetic uh judges especially not to those appointed in in special courts um uh, for example the special um uh political criminal courts that were set up in uh, in in some countries there uh they uh, the they adjudicated in much more uh pro-nazi ways
0: what were the most successful strategies for judges under Nazi occupation
1: yeah that, that's one of the questions I, I had hoped to uh, be able to answer in uh, uh in in more detail and with more um uh um with more confidence but it's it's this is very hard to say because uh because of the large differences in situations we I, I talked about and the dependence also of um well of your uh on your definition of, of success uh, for example if success is um uh, um the defense of the system against nazi influence you might say that that silent diplomacy and uh um cooperation and and uh, discussion Um, uh, with the occupier is the best option but if success is um, how you are evaluated after the liberation uh, then it might be wise to to uh, publicly criticize um, the occupier or even resign so you can uh, show after the uh, after the liberation that you um, uh, you you had already shown to be on the on the right side um, uh, so to speak um this this became um explicit in the, the correspondence between a dutch um, supreme court uh, judge yeah. and a dutch uh, law professor um they discussed the right strategy for judges under the german occupation and um the um the judge said, well, it, it's better to, to cooperate a little bit with uh, with the Germans so you can, can uh, remain in office and you can exert influence on the uh, op- uh, policies of the occupier uh, while in office. And if you uh, do something heroic, uh, criticize them or, or uh, resign out of protest, then that might be a, a good, um, it might uh, be a very, inspiring signal uh for for the population and for other uh lawyers for example but um, what do you achieve um, materially with with this uh, with such an action um, so he preferred the the silent diplomacy um, approach um while the the law professor he uh, corresponded with was was much more um, uh, a man of principle and said no you either uh stick to your principle or you step down uh and and what happens after you step down that's not up to you that's that's on the occupier so you don't have to worry about that uh which is a very different uh different approach morally as well as um uh, pragmatically and and what they also uh, commented on was the the strategy of the belgian um uh, judges who, as I said, were much more active in their uh, negotiations with the Germans. and they all, also also uh, had um, uh, written uh, an open letter of critique to the German uh, occupiers uh, concerning um, uh, um, concerning um, d- drafting workers for to, for work in Germany. And um, they deliberately made this letter public as well, so to show the the the, the, the people that they were um, um, fighting the right fight and, and being on the on the right side, and not just cooperating uh, with the with the enemy. Um, and the Dutch um, Supreme Court justice was totally against this uh, this approach. He said, "Well, um, uh, we are not busy." reserving a place in post-war heaven uh, so so he was he was totally negative on on this uh, this approach um uh which shows a very uh, different uh, um well sorry <laughs> I'll stop there
0: can you tell us about the judicial review case can you tell us about the Tutsing arrest case
1: yes thank you thank you nice dutch uh, pronunciation um so the yeah the judicial review case was um the the dutch controversy on um judicial review um so the competency of judges to review the occupiers measures against uh, uh, international law the Hague, um, regulations criterion of um of absolute necessity uh, for um keeping public order uh, in a Dutch in the Dutch um, um, judicial review case the Supreme Court decided um that Dutch judges did not uh, have the competence to review the legislation uh of the the occupier um which was actually not in accordance with their own um uh, uh, case law um from before the war um but apparently this was a, a pragmatic decision uh, not to antagonize uh, the occupier to keep relations relatively friend- friendly uh, so they thought they could achieve more um, when they would not be uh, dismissed or uh, publicly um, uh, criticized uh, by by the occupier um and this case this this um ruling was heavily criticized in in the Netherlands and uh, many uh, lawyers and jurists were very um, disappointed with it um lawyers even said well um now now with this ruling uh, there's no point in in trying anymore uh to to have other judges um review <laughs> the occupiers legislation because well the supreme court just said uh, it isn't possible um and they later it was um Often uh, contrasted in uh, in discussions with the uh, detention camp Oman case, uh, in which uh, judges from an appeal court uh, did openly criticize the the occupiers' policies because they um, gave a lower sentence uh, to uh, to a thief. Uh, uh, so that he would not end up in this uh, detention camp in in Omen which which was a, a sort of uh, emergency prison because prisons were overcrowded um so he would not end up there because uh, it was known that in this camp uh the circumstances were very uh very much worse than in ordinary um jails and uh, the um uh, Dutch Nazi party members, uh, were, were guards there and they treated the, uh, the prisoners very badly. They, uh, got very bad, uh, food and, um, they ended up in, 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 in hospitals, uh, in the, in the region. So, uh, what the appeal court did was they said, okay, we're going to lower the, uh, the sentence for this uh, thief so that he, he won't have to go there where uh, detention uh, circumstances are much worse than in ordinary prisons. And we also do this uh, because of um, conscience. So, But the mentioning of their, their conscience in, uh, in this ruling was, um, well, uh, in, in a legal perspective, it was not necessary at all. Uh, so it was immediately understood by uh, by Dutch people as well as by the German occupier as a, uh, a critique of the the, the German uh, policies. And these judges were immediately um, dismissed. Uh, and and so then in the illegal press and also after the war, uh, people said, ah, that that is what the our supreme court should have done they should have stood up against the uh, the occupier um uh, making public their critique and not saying uh, uh that they don't have the competence to review legislation because they do and they sh- should have said that and that would have helped us uh, that would have given us the courage to uh, to go on uh, in this terrible uh, situation um so so they uh, st- so it was apparent that there was a very uh, great need for for symbolic um, expressions of of uh, protest against uh, the German policies.
0: Can you tell us about the Cour Supérieure de Justice, the Superior Court of Justice, or CSJ?
1: Yes, this is the, the Supreme Court of uh, of Luxembourg. Um, Luxembourg was a was a very special case because. Um, their Supreme Court uh, had been uh, transformed by the uh, German occupier into several separate appeal courts um, and integrated into the German court system, um, which made German judges competent in Luxembourg. And uh, indeed, some of them came to Luxembourg to sit on those courts. um, And uh, along with these measures, French was banned uh from the uh, the courts and from the administration uh, altogether. German was the only official language um, and uh, so so this is a bit like like Russia is proceeding in in Ukraine right now. Um, and in Luxembourg, um, so Luxembourg was, for all practical purposes, you could say it was annexed by uh, by Germany, but still uh, formally, Uh, Germany uh, still recognized the situation as a military occupation, not an annexation um, because they thought, well, after the war, we're going to settle uh, all this and uh, we're going to um, introduce a new political order in Europe, etc., which of course never uh, materialized, luckily. (laughs) And um, in Luxembourg, the the members of the Cour Supérieure de Justice they uh about eight of them uh, retired or uh, or were dismissed after uh, a a conference with the, with the germans uh early on in the uh, in the occupation uh, so so they appointed uh, new members and german members as well um as it, it so in luxembourg there there was a a bit of a fatalistic um uh attitude because but um, well, they were so small and, and Germany had overrun Luxembourg and they, they they were incorporating Luxembourg into uh into Germany um and that there was very little they could could do about it what they did they, did do um some of the Supreme Court justices uh sent back their obligatory um uh, membership cards to the uh the, the, the Luxembourg um, uh, German Luxembourg Germany uh, Association which they they did not uh, want to be uh, a member of but it was uh, they were forced to but other than that symbolic uh, protest uh, not much uh, was or or could have been done uh, against this this uh rigid this really uh, far-going uh, incorporation of, of Luxembourg into uh, the German, State system.
0: What kinds of dilemmas did judges experience with respect to leaving or remaining in office? How can these experiences teach lessons to other present and historical situations of judges under enemy occupation?
1: Yes, thank you. Um. Uh. So the what, what is called in in the Netherlands is uh what's called what's called in the netherlands the problem or the predicament of the wartime mayor also applies to uh, to judges it is it is exactly that uh problem problem of um should i remain in office and uh, risk being um contaminated with the uh, with the uh identity of the of the enemy uh, because i keep i'm um working for the enemy formally um but um while in office i, I maybe i can try to um uh, to mitigate policies by the by the occupier so so that repression uh, becomes a bit less um than it otherwise would have been um on the other hand i as a judge might step down or uh, protest and risk being uh, dismissed by the occupier which will give a a powerful signal uh, of protest uh, to the occupier as well as uh, for the for the population to uh, so they can see that there is um, protest within the administration against this uh, this occupation Um, but then if I if I leave or if I am dismissed, I might be replaced by something by someone more uh, loyal to the uh, to the occupier, which might make things uh, worse in the end. And of course, you always have to remember that um, in 1940, 41, 42, uh, even 43 or 44, uh, it was not certain how the war would end. Um, so uh, uh it, it, it wasn't the case that in 1942 you could think oh well uh we only have uh two and a half years more to go uh so uh, um we can easily do this or do that or uh or just wait and sit back um and and sit this out uh, so um it is for us very difficult to appreciate the the dilemmas um of um of judges in that time um and um, what for was for judges um especially uh difficult was that um their the the ambiguousness of their the ambiguity of their situation the, on the one hand uh, they in office they were uh, like the defenders of of the the legal system of continuity of stability uh and on the other hand they they were um uh, seen as co-operators, maybe even collaborationists with uh, with the enemy, um, uh, because they were working for and with uh, the enemy. So, um, and and th- that is why I introduced the to to describe this this dilemma. I introduced the uh, the concept of, uh, of of moral hygiene.
0: What is meant by the term moral hygiene? Can you explain and elaborate upon this concept?
1: Yes, so I, I introduced this this um, anthropologically inspired concept because it, it to my mind, it, it captures the the essence of the ambiguous position of judges in wartime. I I defined it as the the practice of keeping one's own identity distinct from that of the enemy, as well as the assessment by others of the success of that practice. Now, what matters in this perspective is. Um, is, so the expression of identities uh the expression of affiliations um or the rejection uh of them irrespective of material costs because identities um especially the identities in question so the the own national identity versus the identity of the enemy occupier um are, are of existential importance you could say uh, it's about good and evil about us and them about um the national uh, system versus the uh, the Nazi occupiers uh, system. Um, uh, so so the what expresses this uh, amongst other things is the, the Belgian expression uh, of the lesser evil which uh, uh, we discussed earlier um, notwithstanding their their tough negotiation, um, the judges were forced in the end to comply with uh, German measures in Belgium. Uh, And because the outcome was somewhat ambiguous, some successes, many compromises, some defeats, it did not yield a spotless moral reputation uh, for the Belgians, uh, which explains in part the the mixed press they they got uh, after the war. And uh, a way of of practicing this moral hygiene is avoiding contact uh, with representatives of the, the enemy. So for example, in the Netherlands, um, the, the loyal appointees in the in the Supreme Court um, were actively isolated by the non collaborationists who held separate meetings uh, and only met with their collaborationist colleagues uh, and with their collaborationist president uh, in the Supreme Court in unavoidable professional situations. So, so they didn't have anything to do with them socially or outside of the court, uh, and they they took. Uh, care not to be seen in com- in the company of uh, the collaborationist uh, president and the, their collaborationist uh, other colleagues um, and for example another example of, of uh, moral hygiene is the Norwegian Bar Association trying to dissuade their members from handling any cases before the new collaborating uh, Supreme Court in, in Norway because uh, they didn't want to lend any legitimacy uh, to to that uh, to that court um well we already discussed the judicial review case and the detention camp Oman case um and, but another example um, of this uh, phenomenon of moral hygiene might be um administrative um so for example um oh what the other example I already gave uh, the Luxembourg judges sending back their uh, membership cards of the the Volksdeutsche Bund, um, which they were obligatory members of, uh, French judges becoming more lenient towards the end of the occupation, uh, on black marketeers, for example, because they hoped to create, by being more lenient, to create more distance between themselves and the German measures they had been applying, uh, uh, for some years, um, which, didn't sit well, of course, with uh, uh, with citizens in uh, in France. Um, so they 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 tried to 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 save some of their uh, some of their national identity, their integrity um, uh, against being contaminated too much with uh, with the identity of the the German uh, enemy. And so keeping moral hygiene in, in the private and, and professional spheres is, is one thing. is less dangerous, uh, but also less convincing um, for others than if you do it in the public sphere by stepping down, for example, or by giving public uh, criticism. Um, but because then you can run the risk of being punished by the German occupier for your, your criticism, your disobedience and, and replaced by more loyal uh, collaborators. And one, one important aspect that I should mention, I think, uh, of moral hygiene is that um like like reputation, you you cannot entirely control it. Um so that um, any material benefits or results for the people um of your cooperation with the enemy might be just by, judged by those same people as not weighing up to um the the contamination. Um, you have um, uh, um, called upon yourself uh, by cooperating as a Supreme Court justice with the with the enemy uh, the evil enemy occupier um and thereby con- contaminating not only the Supreme Court itself but um as a consequence even the whole nation's reputation uh you know um In a way, defiling national identity with that of of the the, the fascist identity of the uh, the oppressor, which uh, is your um, uh, your supervisor,
0: who was Johannes van Loon. Can you tell us about him?
1: Ah yes, Johannes van Loon was the the uh, the president of the Dutch Supreme Court who was appointed by the occupier after the Jewish president had been ousted, um, uh, and uh, Johannes van Loon was a um, a jurist. He worked at the university, but he he had very uh, good connections in Germany before the war, and he knew some of the members of the German uh, occupation regime. Um, so he uh, managed to secure his uh, appointment as uh, president of the supreme court he had no um, uh, court experience whatsoever he had never been a judge um so he had to be more or less managed by one of the older members of the of the court uh, uh, who had to tell him um uh, what to do how to um, how to lead the court and uh, what his duties and, uh, were and how things were going how things were organized uh, at the court um this was another uh this was very risky of course because in his um uh collaboration with with this president he he got contaminated himself because he was um uh, very much uh, uh because he was um he, he spent of all the judges he probably spent the most time with this uh with this enemy appointed uh, uh president who at at, at uh, other, um, uh, situations was was isolated uh, as much as uh, as possible. but he had to be managed because if he wasn't met ma- the other um option that they had was just um, uh, leave him to his own devices, and then he will totally make a fool of himself, uh, but he will also probably frustrate the the functioning of the court. Um, so they decided in the end that they should help him uh, in order to uh, keep the court uh, functioning, um, which which uh, they succeeded in.
0: Who is Charles Frémicourt? Can you tell us about him?
1: Yeah, uh, Charles Frémicourt was the president of the Cour de Cassation in, uh, in France. Um, he was appointed in 1937, so before the war. Um, and um, during the war... Uh, the the co- collaborationist uh, regime in uh, in France um, tried to or did actually uh, without his knowing appointed him as a ministry minister of Justice as well which is a strange combination of course of, uh, of functions uh not unique to this uh, to the uh, occupations uh, in the Second World War um so but he, he was surprised when he found out that he had been appointed uh, minister as well, and displeased also. Um, and he he, uh, he succeeded in in uh, resigning, giving up his cabinet post within a, a couple of weeks uh, uh, already. Um, and but in the, his very short tenure as minister of justice, he uh, he did sign some decrees concerning the the functioning of the the. Supreme Court which he also sat uh in um and um uh to 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 further the the functioning of the Supreme Court and um what is interesting also uh of of this um uh, Charles Frémicourt is that um so the 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 Supreme Court in in France was not uh really, um, active in, uh, opposing the, the German regime or the collaborationist, uh, French, uh, regime of, uh, in the, in the South, uh, of France, which, which was not, um, occupied by the Germans. Uh, but, uh, after the war, um, he was, uh, Relieved of his functions, he was even arrested uh, because he had been a minister um, with the with the collaborationist uh, regime, uh, and and he retired. Um, but then um, the the Conseil d'Etat, the Council of State, reversed this decision, and um, uh, he was after the war. Um, he rejoined the the Court of um, uh, of cassation and he was appointed the first honorary president of the court cassation um in 1954 and this these decisions also show um how this institution actually exonerated his, itself from all suspicion as uh, the the writer of this chapter um uh, puts it um so this this mirrors a little bit the appointment of René Cassin in the uh, uh, Conseil d'État, um, uh, which also contributed to sort of whitewashing um, the institution and 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 silencing criticism uh, of their wartime conduct.
0: What does your book teach us about Nazi foreign policy?
1: So. It, it it more or less it underlines uh, what we already know about uh nazi uh, policies um concerning the occupied territories that they did not have a grand scheme uh, already um uh completely worked out they um of course hitler decided on the type of occupation regime uh, military or uh, or civilian but then um as soon as the occupation regimes were in place they they very much um made it up as they went along because they had to of course first they had to find out the about the structure of the uh, the whole administration in the country they were uh, occupying um and um they expected this all to be a um, relatively temporary solution because uh, in, a, in a couple of uh, years, they expected that Germany would have won the war and then things would be settled uh, um, uh, definitely. Um, and they they did um, there were a lot of theories on this. So for example, from uh, from Werner Best, uh, who was a, a jurist in the occupation regime in France and later became a plenipotentiary in in Denmark uh published extensively on his theory of gross which means administration of a large region um uh, so there was and he also made a a, a trip um uh, to all the uh, uh, um, occupation regimes um, that were studied in this book except Luxembourg and he, he made a whole description of the um, so how many German functionaries were there uh, what kind of German courts were introduced and uh, etc so th- there was a lot of research uh, done but there were not um, clear plans that were implemented um, um in a uniform way of uh in, in all the um occupation uh, uh regimes and the the way the judiciaries were treated also mirrors this um making up as they went along kind of uh, kind of policy uh expecting um uh, in a few years to to organize whole Euro- the whole of Europe uh in the way that the the, the German Nazis uh um dreamed about
0: can you explain the term "Grossraumverwaltung"? What does it yes, specifically so, so, what does it specifically mean, and what was its significance in the context of the time?
1: Yes, uh, sorry. Um, so the, the Grossraumverwaltung is um, the administration of of large region regions, and um, the Germans envisioned um, a Europe in which they would be the leading people. So they they talked a lot uh, in terms of peoples instead of states um and in in the in the future um the germany would be the leading uh, people in in europe and they would determine the relations between uh, other peoples they would be um uh, governing um, much of europe uh, especially the germanic um peoples uh, so it was a, uh, their racist vision of a a europe organized by uh, by germany um of, of course without uh, without the jews and um uh, the 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 peoples the, the other peoples that they um um considered inferior such as uh the slavic peoples and and uh, southern european um peoples uh would have to be uh, ruled directly by by germany and other germanic uh peoples would be allowed uh, a measure of of self-rule um and but germany would always be the leading state and um there would be a, a minimum of of legal rules so as to um yeah things as to allow things to be organized um uh, organically um if, if, but, but that remained very vague.
0: What were the 1937 instructions? Can you describe them and their importance?
1: Yes, the 1937 instructions were um, instructions by the Dutch government for Dutch uh, civil servants and judges, uh, instructing them um, very unambiguously to remain in office as long as possible for the benefit of the people. Until their functioning would be more in the interest of the occupier than in the interest of the people. Now, this might seem very clear and straightforward, but actually, this uh, leaves it up to every individual civil servant uh, to decide for himself when this point would be reached so this is very difficult and it's it's also very difficult and um uh, for the people involved very uh, unsatisfactory to to be um uh, to be judged um according to this this criterion which which can can be interpreted very differently by the returned uh government officials uh when, when they returned from from exile for example uh than by people who are actually in the situation um in the in the country um having a very different perspective and probably not knowing at all when exactly this point uh, would be would be reached and I, I i think there is no such point uh in fact um these these instructions were um Drafted in 1937, they were kept very secret because the Dutch government w- was um, afraid that otherwise, if, if they would become known, they would offend uh, Germany, a um, uh, a befriended <laughs> a, at the time of, um, a befriended state. So the, they they took, took great care to uh, to keep them a secret, and in some um, um, uh, some cities, these instructions were even uh, burned when the the, the Germans invaded because uh, they were in an envelope saying secret. Uh, And so (laughs) they didn't read them uh, and didn't know what the instructions uh, were. Of course, later they they became uh, better known, um, but still there were um, many civil servants and judges were really uh, offended by the government's interpretation of these uh instructions after the war um when when some uh civil service of course were um uh, investigated and uh, and and some had uh, had to stand trial and they said well um how can you know when this point of uh being more in the interest of the occupier than in the people's interest was reached because you were in um, in London uh, and and we were here uh trying to make uh, the best of it this was also uh the 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 heart of the controversy between the dutch supreme court and the dutch government in uh, uh who were in london um criticizing the supreme court and uh, which led to a huge um stalemate situation after the the um, Dutch government returned from exile and um, actually wanted the Supreme Court members who were still left uh, to step down voluntarily um, because, well, their functioning was uh, uh, less than satisfactory in the eyes of the returned government. But, of course, the judges said, well, we made the best of it uh, according according to our own um, knowledge and insights. And... We are independent, so you cannot um, dismiss us and uh, you can also not judge um, on how we uh, conducted ourselves during the war, because uh, you weren't here to know um, what it was like and to know what exactly it was like to, to, to make these um, decisions.
0: Can you tell us about belgian article 5 of the law of may 10th 1940 what did it specify what did it signify
1: ah yes so this this was a, a a law um enacted in belgium uh at the at the very start of the 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 german uh occupation and it is about the delegation of powers so they um because the um the ministers they had fled the country, Um, they delegated their powers to uh, subordinate uh, functionaries. Uh, It it states that when in a war, uh, a magistrate or a judge or a civil servant is deprived of all communication with the supervisors, then um, he exercises the powers of those supervisors uh, themselves. And this awarded the secretaries General with the powers Um, of the ministers um, amongst others to issue decree laws and the germans recognized this um, but they only wanted to recognize this um, legislative power for non-political matters Uh, and later uh, the germans wanted these decrees by the um, secretaries general to be equated with royal decrees so that they could not be reviewed by the courts um, and that's uh, where it becomes important for the for the Supreme Court, because the Supreme Court pr- Court President uh, Jamar was actively involved in the uh, negotiations concerning these um, legislative authorities uh, of the secre- Secretary General, and um, so and he refused to go along with the the German demand that these decrees w- would be unreviewable by the by the courts. Um, this caused tensions uh, between the occupier and the courts and eventually led in 1942 by an explicit ban on judicial review um, uh, that the Germans introduced. Um, and this further aggravated the controversy because the the, the courts uh, did not agree with this and uh, a lot of um, negotiations were necessary to come to a new so-called pact. Um, uh, on the status of these uh, decrees, which again uh, was not wholeheartedly accepted, but uh, in the end the, the judiciary was was forced um, uh, by the Germans to uh, to accept it and uh, to accept the ban on on judicial review.
0: What contribution does your study make to our understanding of the relationship between the Nazis and the societies they occupied?
1: Ah, yeah, so the, the, the fates of the, the judiciaries um of the democratic occupied countries um I think largely confirmed the the picture that public order was in the interest of both occupiers and occupied peoples, and that in most cases the German occupier understood that that having a smooth working judiciary was was more important uh for the regime than a completely Nazified uh, judiciary, because um the latter was Totally unattainable because of what we discussed earlier about the uh, difficulty uh, to uh, to uh, find enough um, skilled professionals that uh, can, can um, take up the position of of, of a supreme court uh, justice or or in a, any other um, court uh, function. And although in some countries they did take drastic measures concerning the courts, they nowhere did they dismiss uh, judges on a large uh, scale and even in in Norway where the the court stepped down out of protest um um much pressure was exerted on the members of the courts not to step down uh so so even so the the occupier preferred um a court which was very critical of um uh, of the occupation regime um to a to the court stepping down and they having to uh, to fill the court uh, again with uh, um with maybe more sympathetic uh, judges but they were very very hard uh, hard to find and the book also shows that th- how the germans used the courts in their effort to legitimize their regime um uh, taking great care to prevent any public controversies um and um uh, Another example in in this regard is uh, that in Norway, a, a booklet was published on a ruling by the uh, by the Supreme Court, the new Supreme Court, that was uh, favorable to the occupation regime in that it uh, dismissed the competence of uh, uh, Norwegian judges to uh, review um, the occupiers' uh, uh, legislative uh, decrees.
0: Who was Ludwig Ernst Visser? Can you tell us about him and his importance?
1: Yes. Uh, Lodewijk Ernst Visser was the Dutch um, uh, president of the Supreme Court when the, the Germans invaded. He was uh, a Jew, and so he was uh, forced out of the court uh, in 19, 1940. Um, uh, and in um, he after being uh for, forced uh, forcibly forcibly retired he uh, uh became very active in the jewish community in the netherlands um uh of course his role in the in the judiciary um uh was uh, had ended but he um what was i going to say so so Visser, uh, was a very highly respected um, uh, jurist, highly respected judge, Um, but he experienced, well, not very much support from his uh, former colleagues, Um, but he had also expressed the opinion that um, he was actually glad not to be um, the only Jew left in office. He, He said that, well, it would have been probably more difficult for me to uh have um uh have remained in office um because then I would have that I could not share the fate of my uh uh of, of other Jews who were uh, who, who were ousted from their uh, from their offices. Um and so so there was a controversy over uh what what the other Supreme Court justices should or should not have done um against his uh, dismissal um many people said well it, it's a it's a shame it's it's scandalous that the other judges didn't protest more against um the dismissal of uh of president uh, Visser um while others said well um didn't he say himself that he, uh preferred to share the fate uh, of of other Jews uh, to um, having some kind of uh, special arrangement uh, for for him, which is um, an interesting uh an interesting position I think.
0: Can you comment on the significance of the World War II period in the long term trajectory of European legal history? How does the mm-hmm. relationship between fascism and law, between fascism and Supreme Courts, contribute to our understanding of the trajectories of European legal history in the 20th century?
1: That's a big question. Uh, um, it's. Uh, I'll try to say a couple of things uh, uh, about that. Um, the, the fascist period in the in the history of Europe, especially uh, concerning uh, law and, and the courts, um, I think um, the especially the post-war evaluations of the functioning of the Supreme Courts and subsequent uh, historiography underline how important uh, the struggle against Nazism still is um, as a sort of a, an origin myth of democratic Europe. Um, since the second world war um uh in in the judiciary in other uh contexts um is always uh it is still referred to as a sort of a a, a moral um uh a criterion are you would you be uh would you stand up against uh um uh a, a new fascist uh, occupier or would you uh collaborate in in some way uh it's always the the, the 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 question that that is even today um still discussed in discussions on uh judicial ethics uh, uh for example what would you do if you were in the position of uh, a judge under nazi occupation um so the, the opposition between Democracy and, and fascism uh, still parallel to the, the opposition between good and evil, and um, well, you see that anti-democratic tendencies are often still regarded as as a step on the way to the return of fascism or a lapse back into fascism. Um, and when politics seems to slide back in in such a direction, the courts are looked to. The courts are looked to uh, as an important institution that might still uh, be the last defense against the demise of liberal democracy um and that's why um the historiography on courts that were not deemed very heroic uh, at the time under german occupation um is is so 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 negative or so um uh, apologetic sometimes um but i think that um we should view the history of the courts in that respect with, with, with more, um, uh, more understanding for their, uh, for the situations, uh, they were in and the, the lack of, uh, foresight that they had, um, because we are always judging of course, with the, the benefits, but maybe better said with, uh, the burden of hindsight. Um, and so, although, um, the, in, a, in the bigger picture the the struggle against fascism is like the struggle against uh evil and and the sort of a uh origin myth of, of democracy in Europe um I think it is unfair to judge um courts in that period uh uh too too critically um when you forget that they did not, no, they couldn't calculate the, the consequences of their uh, um, their strategies and their decisions to either remain in office or, or leave office.
0: As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about what you've been working on or focusing on after completing this book?
1: Ah, yes, I've um, um, I've written a couple of uh, articles uh, in Dutch on the the Dutch childcare benefits uh, scandal, uh, which is uh, so my interest in the. In the judiciary uh, uh, remains, and this is still the focus of my my research. Um, uh, and besides writing on the role of the highest administrative uh, ju- court in the Netherlands um, in the childcare benefits uh, uh, scandal, I uh, I also focus on uh, uh, judicial ethics. I've written a book with a colleague on judicial ethics, uh, which is um, handed to every now. Uh, which is handed to every judge um starting the the judges training program uh, in which i also teach uh, professional ethics um so i'm very much trying to uh, put my knowledge to practical use um, and we also uh, often discuss the wartime um fates of uh, of the judges in in the netherlands and europe and during these uh, these courses so so also for me there's still um uh of practical use for inspiring um judges today uh in thinking about their professional um attitude and uh, their uh, the the importance of their place in the um, liberal democratic uh, rule of law state
0: thank you for all the wisdom and erudition you shared with us today and thank you for everything you sacrificed and invested to bring the information and insights in this remarkable book into fruition and into reality for all of our benefits.
1: Thank you, Ari. That's uh, for your kind words and for your time and uh, for the invitation uh, to this uh, podcast uh, interview series. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for all the labor that went into this and for the final result. Thank you. As we end today's dialogue, I am your host Ari Barbalat on the New Books in Genocide Studies podcast. Today I've been in dialogue with Dr. Dirk Venema of the Open University of the Netherlands. We have been discussing his newly edited book, Supreme Courts Under Nazi Occupation, published in Amsterdam by Amsterdam University Press 2022. Thank you.